Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Joan Scott, the author of Sex and Secularism, and the book was published by Princeton University Press in 2018. Hi there, Joan. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm glad to be here. Much of your previous work in French and European history, the history of women and gender, and in feminist theory will be familiar to so many, if not all, of the people who tune into this interview. And I can't imagine trying to cover all of it in any kind of introduction or summary, but maybe you could get us started by situating this latest book in relationship to your previous work for us. Well, it came after all of the other ones. (laughs) That's the first part. It, it continues my preoccupation with questions about difference and how hierarchies of difference are established, and of course, particularly with the question of gender and how the attributions of certain characteristics to men and women, masculine and feminine, operate to organize social entities, to organize social life, and especially to organize politics. Mm-hmm. So it's the relationship between gender and politics that I think has been interesting to me or or a challenge for me to think about for a really long time. In fact, when I wrote that first essay that has now become the sort of classic way I'm referred to, gender, a useful category of, of historical analysis, I have a line in there in which I say that what we need to think about is the way in which gender constructs politics and politics constructs gender. And I think I would say that that um, relationship has been of interest to me since then, then that, that essay was in 1986, um, and continues to be of interest to me. And I think in this book, I formulate in a better way than I ever have done before what the nature of that relationship is. In some ways, this book seems deliberately to be a kind of continuation of some of the themes and questions you explored in the 2007 book, The Politics of the Veil. Could you talk a little bit about the connection between this book and that scholarship? Yeah. um, In The Politics of the Veil, I took up the question of the French law outlawing the wearing of Islamic headscarves in public schools. And uh, there's a chapter in that book called Secularism. And I engaged with the French defense of the law they passed in 2004, but the laws that have, in fact, come into being since then that are even more um, punitive and far-reaching than the one of 2004, in which the veil or the headscarf is considered to be um, uh, an affront to French secularism, proof that um, those people wearing it are not fully assimilated or integrated into the French society because laïcité, secularism, is the guiding principle of the French state. And that's just one chapter in the book. 
And I kept thinking afterwards, well, this issue of secularism is a bigger one than France and a bigger one than I could deal with when I was just dealing with the book on the headscarf. And what I did actually after that was organize at the Institute a year-long theme seminar on secularism. And a number of people who are working on various aspects of it, people in religious studies and anthropology, in history, political science, came and we spent the year talking about how to think about secularism. Hmm. And I think um, it was that year and that those discussions that led me to think that it would be useful to write this book, to, to write about the way in which secularism is a discourse defining itself in relationship particularly to religion, but also is a process of rationalizing and and making scientific all aspects of social, political, economic life. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's a very powerful form of thinking, organizing things. It, you know, Foucault would probably call it a, a kind of an event, you know, that mm-hmm. the, the arrival of the concept of secularism and the processes of secularization that went with it created a really new way of thinking about all sorts of things, but including the relationship between men and women and, and or the relationship between the sexes. And I was particularly interested in the connections between gender or sex and secularism. Mm-hmm. And it followed from the headscarf book because... Uh, there, the argument was that not only was wearing a headscarf a, viola- a violation of French secularism, secularism of laïcité, but also that it was a sign of the oppression of women, um, the inherent belief in their inequality and their subordination. And as a student of French history, <laughs> but also more generally of European history, I knew that the period in which secularism came into being was not a period of emancipation or liberation for women. Mm-hmm. In fact, quite the opposite. It's it's the period in which the the prevailing laws, the understanding of society creates a kind of, of, of hierarchy in which women and a separation of spheres in which women are attributed a certain very set of specific roles and men a different set of roles. And it was that uh, history that I was interested in looking at as well, because it seemed to me to challenge the notion that um, the West has always been in favor of women's emancipation, whereas the East, in, in um, quotation marks, mm-hmm. has has been about the oppression of women. The introduction to the book, Joan, begins itself with your commentary on Samuel Huntington's notion of a clash of civilizations. Mm -hmm. And that work has been doing its own kind of work for, is it over 25 years now? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about how you see the book positioned as a critique of Huntington's ideas in a broad sense? Sure. Uh, The clash of civilizations notion is a way of, I think, a post-Cold War way of positioning the East, the Muslim East, um, as the new antagonist for the Christian West. (laughs) So what emerges uh, post-Cold War, when we no longer had the Russians as um, our enemy, our presumed enemy, ideologically as well as as politically, um, we now were, were 
they were now putting in place another enemy, which was um, Muslims and, and the East. And the Middle East would become the place, the focus for security concerns, uh, ideological concerns, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so the book, the book was meant to say, um, you know, this is not really about a clash of civilizations. Um, or if you want to look at the um, secular European side of things, there's a lot to be criticized in relationship to the very things that are being attributed only to the East. Throughout the book, Joan, you use gender, women's emancipation, gender equality. So I guess this is a question about the title. How did it come to be sex and secularism (laughs) rather than some of those other possibilities? (laughs) Well, I'm laughing because there was always going to be gender in the title, but I think that the marketing issue of the book made sex and secularism sound like a sexier title. (laughs) I think that's... (laughs) That's that's why. I mean, I think basically that's why, because it was really boring to have gender and secularism. Who would who would want to read that? <laughs> um, but I also think that it's it's right in a way because the very la- the the last chapter where I talk about sexual emancipation mm-hmm. and the history of the way in which sexual emancipation comes to the fore as the only test of democracy's um, gifts to women is really about sex. It's not about gender. And so in that way, we could justify it as well and say that one of the things I was interested was in was the way in which sexual emancipation becomes the sign of secularism's emancipatory promise. Mm-hmm. And the critique I make is that even if that is the case, that is, even if women in the West can sleep with anybody they want to, um, it's not necessarily a sign of the kind of emancipation that one thinks of or the kind of equality one thinks of between the sexes that uh, feminism has long sought to to bring into being. You begin the book, Joan, by outlining your approach in terms of an emphasis on the discourse of secularism, and you distinguish, you know, your own work and methodology from other types of histories. How do you see your work here as a particular kind of intervention with respect to existing literature on secularism? Well, I think I'm I'm critical of the, the the history of secularism as a history of the triumph of uh, reason over religion, to put it in its most simple-minded mm-hmm. uh, form. But I feel like I'm part of a movement that, um, in fact, is thinking secularism in critical and very different ways. Um, Tomoko Mazuzawa's book, for example, The Invention of World Religions argues that it's actually secularism that invents religion as its opposite. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's religion before. There are you know, beliefs and practices that people were involved in. But um, the notion that religion was this organized thing that had people's minds <laughs> formed in a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, antithetical to um, reasonable belief, was just not the case. I mean, what she argues is instead that it's the discourse of secularism that produces religion as its opposite. So that book, I think, I, and then there's John Modern, the, the um, American historian, or he's not a historian, I think he does, he's in religious studies, John Lardis Modern, who writes about secularism in 19th century America, who mm-hmm. talks about the way in which religion becomes secularized. That is, 
the appeal to reason and science, scientific standards and uh, the organizing along rationalist principles comes to characterize religion as well as everything else. So secularism, in his view, is uh, one of those epistemological moments that transforms everything in its wake. It's not the opposite of religion. In fact, it produces its own forms of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are others as well who, who, who write in a similar uh, vein. I just read an amazing manuscript by Peter Covello about Mormons. And he argues in that book that um, the early Mormons, the, the uh, polygamous, uh, uh, sexy Mormons, were, even though patriarchal, were about um, pushing the boundaries of sex and religion as far as you can imagine. And in those early days, they were repudiated by normative religious groups in American society. And in their search for statehood and respectability, the Mormons become what he would call secularized. Mm -hmm. That is, they adopt the normative principles of American Protestant religions. And so I think of my work as allied with the people who are writing about the ways in which secularism is a regulatory process. Uh, Tal al-Assad is another, you, you can put in that list, Sabah Mahmoud, among the anthropologists. It's people who are reading secularism critically as a, a set of regulatory norms rather than as the kind of salvation of society from the harm that religion does. So reading and how you read in this book, in the introduction, you make an important distinction between the kind of history of secularism that you're not doing and the emphasis on the discourse of secularism, looking at this in genealogical terms, taking a critical approach. You talk about the history of the present. So without asking you to (laughs) summarize (laughs) the whole of your kind of methodological approach. Can you just say something about the relationship between that maybe more traditional history that you're not doing and the approach that you do take in the book? Yeah, um, it's hard to answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that um, I'm, I'm looking for all of the places where gender is an issue or where, where for, for evidence of the ways in which this project of of secularism is not about liberation or emancipation. And and in some ways I felt like many of the chapters in the book were a rehearsal of what many other people have written about. I mean, I I do think of this book as a a kind of synthesis of Mm -hmm. the work of second wave feminists in the, in the eighties and nineties of um, post-colonial scholars, um, people who took up critically the emancipatory promises of Western liberal democratic societies and said, wait a minute, um, it may be that these were promises, but how did it actually play out on the ground? How is it that these racial distinctions are maintained? Um, how is it that colonialism is justified in the name of liberal democracies? And so I think in, in that sense, I looked to a whole body of literature that had already done the critical work that I was doing, and I wanted to bring it back together. The other thing I discovered was that lots of people who, it's not your generation, but one a bit younger than you, I think, a lot of the people who who write current history 
don't use sources, they use historical sources, but don't read books written before 2000. <laughs> um, I was really shocked by that. You know, the number of people who don't cite the sources I cite, which come from the 70s and 80s, you know, that moment of explosion of um, mm-hmm. feminist, um, anti-racist, post-critical scholarship of one kind or another, the number of people who don't cite what I thought of as the formative books of those years is really striking. And so I thought one of the things this book could do would be to synthesize that work and bring it back to uh, to our attention, you know. Right. With the 2018 yeah, publication Yeah, the 2018 date. publication date. Right, exactly. So, you know, hey, this is just published. You better read it. So one of the things that I might have suspected this, but one of the things that I learned from the introduction of the book, you know, let alone the rest of the book, is the fairly recent coinage of the term secularism itself. So maybe before we go any further, if you could just give us a really quick rundown of where this word comes from and, you know, how it begins to be used in, and in what context. Well, the, the, the word secular has a long history going mm-hmm. all the way back. Um, but the word, the, the word secularism comes from the mid-19th century. It's first used in England um, by George Holyoke and others who are looking for ways to uh, resolve the science versus religion controversies. They don't want to be called atheists because they don't want to give up on religion, but they also um, want some term that will be an alternative to those hmm. charged and loaded uh, notions. So it's atheism versus religion. Secularism becomes a way of um, an alternative way of thinking about removing religion and theological uh, discussion from political discussion. It is about the neutrality of the state, um, particularly, um, but also a generally a general kind of neutral politics. But it definitely is is atheism is the the danger to be avoided in the. Um, use of the coinage of that term. Mm-hmm. And in France, it, it, it's 1871, it's at the moment of the Third Republic, when, and it's the anti-clericals of the Third Republic who coined the term um, and who use it to distinguish themselves from the supporters of the Catholic Church and the monarchy, which are support one another um, and who are crucial to the support of one another. And there it means a separation of religion from um, consideration, political considerations. The state po- politics are one thing, religion is another, and you can't use religious argument to justify political action or political argument. Well, speaking of France, so you were trained as a historian of modern France and modern Europe, mm-hmm. and certainly your work, you know, doesn't focus exclusively on France, but comes back to France over and over again. I wonder if you could say something in a sort of in a broad sense about the role that the French case and context play throughout this book. Well, they're very important for me. Um, I think France is the extreme example of a kind of hard uh, ideology of, of secularism, laicite, which, as you know, the French insist can't be translated which I, 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 you probably haven't seen the French translation of the book. And it's really interesting. The French translation of the book is called 
la religion de la laïcité, huh. the religion of secularism. There's no sex in the title at all. Oh. Because the French publishers thought that uh, it would be, as it were, sexier to, to talk about the religion of secularism <laughs> than it would be to talk about sex and secularism. And they were right. The reaction in France was people were hysterical. <laughs> wow. And, and the notion of religion of laïcité is really good because on the one hand, it suggests the fundamentalism of French visions of secularism. And on the other hand, it suggests the, the, you know, the religious secular connection, that is that secularism is not about the purity, about the purification of the state from religion, but that there's an awful lot of Christian religion right in there with secularism that is unacknowledged. So I, the, that title, I thought, actually worked really well um, and captured in a kind of ironic way the double implication of, of the notion of religion in, in relation to French laïcité. Mm -hmm. So, of course, France, France was my extreme example. Um, I think there are other places in the world in which um, there have been more, more compromises with uh, religion, in which still the state thinks of itself as secular. There's one thing I cite in the book, a case before the European court brought by Italian um, teachers about crucifixes hanging in classrooms. Mm -hmm. And the argument that the Italian state makes is that crucifixes in classrooms are part of the history and cultural heritage of, quote, the secular nation of Italy. And so the, the and that's another thing that the book talks about a great deal, that it's not really religion that's gotten rid of. It's a kind of subsuming of religion to the operations of the state rather than a clear opposition between them. And that's true even in France. I mean, the national holidays that are celebrated in France are Catholic holidays, not only mm -hmm. Christmas um, and Easter, but, you know, the Assumption of the Virgin, the Ascension of, I learned more about <laughs> the different ways the Virgin gets to heaven or not than I, living in France, than I ever knew living in, in the United States. Anyway, so France is, France is my, is my sort of extreme example. Right. Um, but I, I would argue that it's not uh, peculiar or special that the, the things that I'm talking about in the book, the ways in which gender inequality is understood to be a natural phenomenon rather than a religiously inspired one is characteristic of most, if not all, of, of the Anglo-American Western Europe, Europe experience. And that's another, another point, I think, to make is that with the disappearance of or the forbidding of religious justification for uh, political activity, social organization, and so on, comes a substitute, which is nature. Um, and so if God didn't ordain the difference between the sexes, nature certainly did. And nature and the science around uh, nature becomes the justification for the separation of spheres and the asymmetry, if not inequality, of the sexes in secular nation state, modern secular nation states. The book, Joan, tracks the role of gender in national and state discourses of secularism historically, but you're also looking at this West-non-West -West divide and the way that secularism has run throughout the histories and is run throughout with histories of race and empire. Could you say a little bit about how you're negotiating 
the interactions between gender and race and empire throughout the book? Yeah, that was that was hard to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, the racial discrimination and the racial inequality is is always there. Yeah. Uh, but in a book that's looking primarily at the issues of gender, it's easy to forget or to overlook those issues. Mm-hmm. But one of the ways I think in which it, it becomes possible to think them all together is exactly around colonialism, is the ways in which uh, the situation of white Western women uh, becomes the standard against which the oppression, inferiority, mistreatment um, of colonial others, colonial subjects, gets articulated again and again. So that um, one of the interesting things I I realized in the course of, of doing this was when I read de Tocqueville writing about democracy in America, and when he writes, he has a chapter in, in that book called um, On the Equality of American Women and Men. And what he argues is that um, American women have a kind of equality that's really extraordinary compared to um, even Europeans. But the no- his notion of equality is based on a notion of liberal contract. That is, the women, he says, wisely consent to their subordination to their husbands because in in any um, community or entity, whether it's a nation state or a household, there has to be only one ruler and that ruler has to be a man. And so, but what women in consenting to subordinate themselves do is entering a liberal contract. This is the Carol Pateman argument mm. um, in the sexual contract. Consent are seen as consenting to their subordination which means that it can be argued to be a form of equality since the making of the contract is an egalitarian event um, that other societies don't have. And, and so then the, the colonial argument becomes our women are equal because they are involved in or engaged in um, consensual relationships mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the women of uh, the benighted East um, are oppressed, uh, forced to subsume themselves to their to their men, and so on and so forth. So it's as if patriarchy only existed in the colonized areas, and uh, the West embodies a kind of egalitarianism, even if it even if there's asymmetry in the relationships or what we would call inequality in the relationships. But race is a very powerful justification for that. Um, The white woman is seen as privileged, emancipated, uh, equal in a way that the dark, the, the dark woman never can be. Right. I wanted to ask you, Joan, about the structure of the book. I mean, it follows a largely chronological order, but I just wondered how you thought through how to organize the book and, and put it together. Yeah. Um, the first three chapters, women in religion, reproductive futurism and political emancipation are really the 19th century materials. They're the attempt to synthesize that huge body of scholarship I mentioned earlier, um, and then bring my own reading to it or my own organizing thinking, um, to it. That first chapter is about the way in which the separation of spheres and the notion that religion is a kind of separate sphere, not only associates women with religion, but almost defines women as religion. Um, The separation is between reason and and passion, 
between political and social, between the state and the home, the market and the and the domestic unit. Those kinds of separations are are thought. And for me, the insight in all of that reading material was that women become associated with religion because of their biological constitution, their a tendency to be more um, passionate, emotional, spiritual, and so on. And so once you associate women with religion, um, they then, women become the problem who have to also be controlled and regulated just like the churches do. The second one was about the second chapter, Reproductive Futurism, and that term is taken from um, Lee Edelman's book, which I know there's great controversy about among queer theorists, but which I, I read it as a kind of brilliant diagnosis of the obsession with children, reproduction, the future of the nation state, mm. which emerges in, in the 19th century, and women's role as uh, the agents of reproduction and women. As, as those who have to be directed to that, to that uh, political and social end. So that chapter is about the ways in which marriage, the family, uh, reproduction become the only way in which sex can be imagined to be enjoyed or had. So that's what that chapter is about. And the third is the political emancipation. It's about the way in which the state, the modern nation state is conceived in which men or, or masculinity is the requirement for citizenship. And then the feminist struggle against that from, from the French Revolution on. But, but then chapters four and five were different. That's where the historical stuff really comes in, I think. Um, I had written a piece on sexual emancipation already, chapter five, for a conference on emancipation <laughs> a couple of years ago. Um, and I was thinking about this stuff then, but not in any direct way. But I knew that the material in the sexual emancipation chapter, which is contemporary, which is about how what we now think of or what is argued to be one of the great benefits of secularism is the possibility for sexual emancipation. But I had no way of getting there from the 19th century and early 20th century materials that are the that are the materials for chapters one, two, and three. And so chapter four was for me the new chapter mm. and the exploration of things I had never thought about before. And it isn't a synthesis of earlier work on um, gender and history, but a, a research that I undertook to kind of try to figure out what the historical trajectory was. And so it became the history from the Cold War to the clash of civilizations. How did we get from right. the post-World War II anxiety about the Soviet Union and its appeal to the social democrats of Europe? How did we get from that to the clash of civilizations argument, the notion that the East, the Orient, the Arab Muslims were the great danger that confronted us? And how did we get from the um, emancipatory sex of the 60s, the claims by feminists that women's liberation was on the horizon, how did we get from that to the kinds of arguments about sexual emancipation that I criticize in the, sixth cha in the fifth chapter? In that first chapter on women and religion, Joan, you look at the separation and gendering of public and private spheres and the consequences that this had for women in terms of citizenship and political participation. And you move from a discussion of, well, the watershed that is the 
French Revolution following the period of enlightenment to the discussion of Protestantism and secularity in the German and American context. So I'm wondering about the range of contexts you explore in this chapter and what some of the distinctions are or aren't between the Catholic Christian contexts that you look at and mm-hmm. the Protestant Christian context. Like, are there two secularisms here at least or more? Well, yes and no, I guess. I think certainly in the Catholic context, the predominance and power of the Catholic Church is politically the issue. And so how to address that issue mm-hmm. and how women figure in that issue is, in a sense, negative. Um, that is, the anti-clericals, um, the secularists, look at their job as getting rid of the influence of the church, the Catholic church, on women who are uh, prone to, susceptible to their influence. Mm. Um, And so there, the notion of the association of women and religion is a negative one. That is the danger posed to the secular republic or the visions of a secular republic or a secular democracy are posed by the unnatural hold that the Catholic Church has on women. Mm. In the case of the Protestant examples, it's a much more benign uh, notion. It's, it's, it's a division of labor that is thought to be okay. Um, women still represent religion and are still uh, drawn to and expressive of religious sensibilities, but that's okay because it complements or repairs the damage that the uh, capitalist market does on the men in the family. It offers a kind of solace or consolation for uh, the cruelties of the political and economic world. And so it's a good thing to have. Um, it, it's a, it's a, an important influence as long as it's kept in its place. The second chapter of the book, Joan, deals with, among other things, the sexual division of labor, property, inheritance. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on what may or may not be an embedded history of capitalism in sex and secularism. It's not a term that comes up a lot in the book. No, it doesn't come up. And that's one of the criticisms of the book is that um, what I'm describing is not only an aspect of the emergence of the modern um, nation state, but also of the way capitalism regulates those relationships and the formation of those of, of those nation states. I didn't want to make capitalism the determining force of my argument in the book. Not that I don't think it matters, and I think in that chapter on reproductive futures, and there's a whole section on political economy and the way political economy incorporates these biological uh, distinctions into its justifications for the assignment of women to only specific kinds of jobs, the lower wages that they're paid, the hostility of male workers to them, the notion that there's a male breadwinner and women's work is is supplementary at best. The goal of much of the labor movement becomes uh, keeping women at home and and men being the you know wage earners who whose wages are sufficient to support and reproduce a family, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's all in there. What I didn't want, I guess, to be the driving force of the argument 
was that it was all the effect of capitalism. Right. I wanted to look at the different ways in which arguments that I would call secular arguments addressed the questions of gender. And I don't think those were always driven by the logic of capital, as, as some people would call it. I think capitalism is part of the story, but it's not the determining part of the story. The, the thing I, for me in, in that chapter more than anything else is, is the, the way in which the arguments from biology take on the same power that earlier arguments from religion took. You know, this, whether it's the size of the brain or the fact that, you know, man, that Michelet quote, man is the brain, woman is the uterus. I mean, all of that argument occurs over and over and over again. As sex is directed towards reproduction, as the family, the nuclear family unit is organized as the reproductive unit of the nation state and of the race, or maybe we could say of the race and of the nation. And so the whole sort of argument for the separation of spheres, even if women are out working, I mean, it, 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 it's, an, it's a kind of abstract argument, but it's one that definitely influences the way people understand their roles in life, in society, in relation to one another. In the third chapter, Joan, you focus on the opposition to women's suffrage in modern democracies. Mm -hmm. How does this chapter build on the arguments and analyses of the previous two in order to explore the justifications for preventing women from enjoying the full rights of citizenship? Well, for one, the biological argument comes in again, mm -hmm. right? You know, those wonderful quotes from those French revolutionaries, you know, if, if did nature give me breasts to feed my children, mm -hmm. <laughs> to feed our children? The biological argument as the ground on which citizenship is denied to, to women is extremely powerful and comes up over and over and over. I mean, I have more quotes for, on that there that I didn't use than I did use. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the quotes are just fabulous. When, when that one guy, Patrick Geddes, who says, you know, what was right. decided among the primitive protozoa cannot be changed by an act of parliament. It's like, <laughs> oh, wow. <clears throat> that, but that biology precedes law. And that kind of argument is, is the same as the argument that was made by religious figures who said God's will is the ground on the transcendent ground on which decisions have to be made. But now it's biology and biology is science. And so the kind of rational justification for um, inequality, it becomes a scientific one. So that, but I also think in that chapter, I introduce the sort of psychological or the psychoanalytic explanation, mm -hmm. which is that the psychic articulation of that notion of the biological distinction is the one in which the possession of masculinity is the key to the exercise of power. Right. So that sort of comes from, develops from the biological argument, but I think it's much more deeply rooted in the uh, production of male subjects in the course of, of, of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. That is, that it's not only that masculinity is the prerequisite for citizenship, but and I actually argue this in, in um, Only Paradoxes to Offer, but that citizenship is what confers masculinity. So if you extend the uh, citizenship to women, then everybody becomes the same. And I have some of these quotes in there where people say, 
you, you know, are you saying that men and women should become the same, that mm-hmm. all difference should, that should be done away with? Um, and I think that sort of psychic uh, connection to uh, political power works both ways. And, you know, I said it already, but that is that in order to exercise political power, you have to be male. But in order to be male, you have to have the exclusive right to exercise political power. What does and doesn't change as women gain the right to vote in some of these modern democracies? Like how do you move across that right. shift? Yeah, I think one of the things that happens is the distinctions move elsewhere. Mm. They don't operate in the realm of, of the vote, of, of citizenship, but at first, certainly in eligibility for office, very few women after in most of the countries where women are given the vote, very few of them are allowed to run for or are elected to office. So that's the first one. And when that sort of, and that, you know, that's even true today. Um, if you look at how recent the explosion of women on the political scene is right. in the United States, um, you have to say, you know, what is it that's, that's taken so long? It took Trump to bring us to, you know, in, seriously increasing the, the representation of women in the House of Representatives, for example. Right. Um, and in most countries in, in Europe, that's the case, that women got the vote, but they certainly didn't get access to political power. Um, there are obviously exceptions, but as a rule, the participation and involvement of women in politics is a very recent development. The issue of participation in the workforce and the organization of segregated labor forces is clearly still goes on, but certainly is another aspect that's not addressed at all by uh, the granting of political rights to women. Um, The differentials in wages, in access to certain kinds of employment um, continues for a really long time. Mm -hmm. Then there are the kind of of psychological analyses of the the way the the media sort of and cultural phenomena, novels, movies, and so on, produce images of normal quote-unquote, normative, we'll call it, gender identities and gender roles continues well beyond the gaining of the suffrage. It's no accident that Simone de Beauvoir writes the second sex after women get the vote in France. (laughs) And and she projects and and describes the continued uh, distinctions that are made to the detriment of women enjoying equal access to various forms of power. You mentioned, Joan, when you were talking about the structure of the book, that it's into chapters four and five that you aren't drawing as much on existing scholarship and that you did this new research to to delve into this question in chapter four about the mm-hmm. period of the Cold War and the move towards this clash of civilizations. And then in chapter five, around this question of sexual emancipation. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how you went about doing that research and the sources that you drew on and how you you pulled first that fourth chapter together? Well, (laughs) I I guess I started by thinking, okay, the Cold War, what did Western democracies do with the Soviets? How did they think? Wasn't that secularism? And the interesting thing is that the Soviets are rarely referred to as secular, almost never. It's as um, godless atheists mm. that they're discussed. And I began to sort of look at Cold War imagery about the Soviets. The thing that was interesting was 
that the godless part of it kept coming up and coming up. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting for, you know, these secular countries to be, including France, which is, you know, the most secular, <laughs> to, to be dealing in those terms. And one of the things I learned was that very early in the Cold War period, Churchill and Truman were discussing the dangers that the Soviets posed economically right. and that the critique of capitalism and the communist system would be appealing to European socialists and how to change the conversation from the advantages of socialism to the disadvantages of Soviet rule. And they hooked on religion as the way to do that so that what was important was that the Russians were denying freedom of religion to the Russian masses. Mm -hmm. And the question of freedom of religion becomes the issue that the Western democracies protect against the Soviet repression of all religion, rather than the issues of economic reorganization. And they managed to get everybody on board. I mean, the Christian democratic parties of Europe are born in that period. Mm. So that Christian and democracy now become synonyms. <laughs> right. And so that produces this sort of Christian, secular, democratic uh, vision against the, the Soviet communist one or the Soviet uh, repression of religion. And so religion then becomes part of what's being defended in the Cold War, the freedom of religion, the free exercise of religion. And that really, I think, became an important theme to sort of, to follow through as it then connected to the question of the situation and the position of women. Mm -hmm. There's the, the moment that I analyze in the book, or I talk about in the book, between Khrushchev and Nixon at the 1959 Soviet right. exposition when they get into an argument about the status of women, and it's the famous kitchen debate, and, <laughs> and, and Nixon says, look at all these dishwashers and washing machines that our women in, in the United States have to liberate them from the uh, burdens of taking care of the household. And Khrushchev says, yeah, but our women are in the workforce. And there's this huge kind of struggle between them or, around, you know, who's emancipating women better. Um, and in the end, they shake hands and say, you know, well, we think women are wonderful, no matter we'll agree to disagree. We, what we agree about is that we love women or something like that. But how that then works to represent the difference between them matters. And then I sort of track that all the way to the end of the Cold War. Then the kind of Christian democratic pairing that has emerged during the Cold War gets articulated again in opposition to the Muslim one, the Muslim anti-democratic, theocratic one. So that's one line of argument that that develops. And then the other one was the, the, the line of argument about sexual emancipation, the feminism of the 60s that then gets recuperated in the, in the 90s for movements protecting women from trafficking and violence against women. What emerges as an emancipatory moment becomes recuperated by the end of the 20th century by coalitions of right and some feminists eyes get trained on women in other parts of the world and their subordination or their exploitation by traffickers. So we, again, we, the, the West, become protectors of 
the sexual liberation of women against the exploitation of that sex and sexuality by these traffickers. Sexual emancipation becomes the brand of the West and sexual repression and exploitation becomes the deficit of the so-called East, of the Islamic East. You use the this idea of sexual democracy. Do you want to say something about how that works? Well, I think, you know, I think that the notion of sexual democracy is certainly useful to think about the ways in which women, gay, queer, now trans, the possibilities for all sorts of different expressions of sexuality and of the attributions of gender identity um, become possible in the tw- late 20th and 21st century. There's no question that those things have developed and emerged. But the question is, to what extent that gets recuperated by capitalist markets who want to sell goods to every right. <laughs> every possible uh, version of identity that we can come up with, <clears throat> and also um, political groups who uh, want to argue in the name of their superiority to, or not political groups, but nations, their superiority to others. And it takes different forms in different places. So um, in France, the the gay gay liberation and gay marriage come much later than in Holland, for example, where both right and left um, support gay rights and gay marriage. I think the Netherlands is the first place in, in Western Europe where gay marriage is, is uh, permitted. The expansion of rights to various of these groups comes about. But the question is, to what extent does that represent the realization of some kind of secular ideal? Right. Um, I don't think it does. I, I think that's where secularism cannot claim to um, to be the the cause or responsible for the arrival of greater rights and greater recognition of the rights of um, a whole set of what what were once sort of as sexually deviant groups. So, I mean, obviously, this book was in the making years before our current moment, but. The history that you explore and examine in this book brings us all the way to our present. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the ways that this book and the moment itself of its arrival kind of come together for you, how this book works, whether that was the original plan or not, as a response to to our current political moment you know, whether it's where you are in the United States, France, where you also work on Europe and a more global context, like how you see the, the I don't want to say the lessons, but I've said it now from this history. <laughs> oh, lessons of <No>. history. <laughs> That's what I'm writing about now. <laughs> well, I have to say that as I was finishing the book and as things got crazier and crazier in the United States, but elsewhere as well. Yeah. And maybe abortion is the is could be taken as the archetypical thing that I was anxious about, sure. um, or abortion rights. But I kept thinking, how am I writing a critique of secularism at the moment when it looks like all sorts of of religious crazies are going to dominate yeah. um, politics again? You know what what's wrong with me? <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And then I talked to to several people who, whom I always confide these anxieties to who said, well, this is also the moment for a critique of secularism and what it didn't promise and it couldn't deliver. Right. 
which were um, forms of equality that are now being attributed to it that um, historically were not part of the plan. In that sense, it's a reminder that some of these notions that um, operate to organize our thinking politically need themselves to be interrogated for the limits they pose on the promises they offer. You mentioned a few times, you know, critiques of the book that you've learned about since its publication. And, you know, you just mentioned a kind of line of, well, I don't know if danger is the right word, but a an anxiety of yours, but also, I mean, I know I've seen here and there the response that says that this book, in its critique of secularism, is letting uh, religion, and in particular, given that Islam is is the focus by the end of the, the story in this book mm-hmm. and in our current moment, that is letting Islamic fundamentalism or radical Islam or whatever the terms are that people use off the hook. So I, mm-hmm. I guess I want to hear your response to that critique? Well, I mean, I think it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what I do Mm -hmm. in the book. Um, What I'm doing in the book is saying that there's a, uh, that this word, this discourse carried a certain set of presumptions that needed to be examined. And that in fact contradicted what people are now saying was the mission and aim of secularism. You could do a similar kind of analysis of the notion of civilization, right? Mm-hmm. You know, civilization is a, a good thing, um, but when it justifies colonial missions, um, you have to think twice about uh, what what work the term does. So what I was interested in was the, the work that the term and everything that went with it was doing to, in fact, put into place hierarchies of gender that, persist to this day, Um, inequalities that cannot be explained away. The point was, um, what are the limits here? What are the promises that can't be kept? What are the associations with this term that have led us to misunderstand what its historical uh, effects have actually been? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that criticism that you're referring to says that secularism is a thing, right? You know, it's like a, a set of of fixed institutions that um, have necessary consequences and effects. And I'm calling that whole vision of what, that whole definition of secularism into question, mm-hmm. um, arguing against the idea that it's a thing and looking at the way it operates and what its effects have actually been and what it's been used to justify uh, rather than what it's been used to create. Well, Joan, there are so many other questions I would love to ask you, but I'll stick to just one. What are you working on now? Well, (laughs) a big question. Um, Earlier this year, I I gave the Ruth Benedict Lectures at Columbia University. They were sponsored by the Anthropology Department. And I called the lectures on the judgment of history. Mm. And what I start by saying is that when the... um, Riots happened in Charlottesville in 2017 with Nazi flags and Ku Klux Klan torches. I thought to myself, naively, because as a historian, I know better, whatever happened to the judgment of history? I thought we were done with the Nazis. (laughs) And I thought, as I say, you know, Joan, what a naive question. (laughs) You know, there's no such thing as the judgment of history. But then I thought, this is interesting to kind of explore because Uh you can't, um, read a newspaper these days, any day, 
without finding somebody who says, well, this will be left to the judgment of history or <laughs> yeah. history will, you know, will, will get it right. Or, or So I started looking at that and then I started, I went back and I read Hegel and Kant and, you know, the people who talk about the judgment of history and the telos of history as in Hegel's case being the nation state. And so I started to sort of play around with, um, how I could think the workings of the, the, the moral notion of the judgment of history in its political uh, applications. And so I have three cases. The first was um, on Nuremberg, the Nuremberg right. Tribunal in 1946. The second, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa in 1996. And the third, the ongoing movement for reparations for slavery in the United States and internationally. And I sort of tried to make sense out of what you could and could not say about how the notion of the judgment of history operates to produce a certain vision of historical causality, historical effect, or how the contrast between past and present opens or doesn't open possibilities for the future. So um, those I gave in, in March, and I gave actually a version of them earlier in Budapest at the Central European University, and now I'm turning them into a book. Um, and so it's figuring out exactly what I meant in those lectures. <laughs> that is my job in the next month. Well, that sounds killer, and I, I can't wait it to is. read it. <laughs> um, Joan, I want to thank you so much for writing this book and for joining me. Thank you for the interview. This has been really interesting. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.